What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's guest on the show is Ryan Smith. Ryan is the co-founder and executive chairman of Qualtrics, a cloud-based subscription software platform for experience management, which he dropped out of college to launch in 2002 with his father and brother. In 2018, it was announced that Qualtrics would be acquired by SAP for reported $8 billion, and in 2021, Qualtrics was listed publicly on the NASDAQ. Along with being a successful tech entrepreneur, Ryan is also the majority owner of the NBA franchise, the Utah Jazz, which he purchased just last year. We spoke with Ryan all about his upbringing and what his childhood was like, what inspired him to start Qualtrics with his father and the early days of building the business, how he felt when the company was acquired, his thoughts on entrepreneurship, why he decided to buy the Utah Jazz, and much, much more. Here we go. Thank you, Ryan, for uh, being a part of this. And um, this is actually, you know, we we released our 200th episode yesterday. So this is 201. We've been doing this for almost four years. Um, and we're excited to chat with you about, you know, your entrepreneurial journey and where it all began and, you know, where you are, where you are now. So uh, just to kind of dive right in, um, you know, we'd like to start off learning about your early days and where you grew up and, you know, what you were like in your family. So kind of run us through a little bit, you know. What young Ryan was like? Where were you born? You know, you talk about your parents, family. Yeah. So, well, first, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, so, I was born in Eugene, Oregon. My father was a faculty member at University of Oregon back in the late 70s, if that's aging myself right there. But um, he was at Penn State University and then um, went to Oregon. And we lived there for a bit. And then um, he transferred to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. So you probably couldn't get two more diverse worlds, uh, Eugene in the 70s to like Provo, Utah. Uh, But so this is really where I grew up. I grew up in Provo. Both my parents are um, academics, right? So my my father was, um, you know, kind of market research, pretty hardcore statistics, multidimensional scaling type guy in you know, kind of again, the guys that write all the books now, I mean, it was just before his time, right, who, who talk about, you know, interesting facts in the world, or those authors who do write the books, they're, they're always quoting their data, and their research. But, um, and then my mother, it was kind of crazy. I mean, we have, we have five children in my family, and um, that we grew up with, we have, I have an older sister and four boys, and we were all two years apart. And so if you think about it growing up, I mean, there was times where it was like five, seven, nine, 11, you know, and then you go into teenagers and it's like 10, 12, 14, 16. And, you know, my, both my parents were working. And so, you know, we grew up and um, it was, you know, in the eighties, especially my mother being a female executive um, in the eighties was not a popular thing. And so I think uh, we, we ran pretty independently is an understatement, right? Is the boys, it was just kind of a containment style. There was no control whatsoever. We were crazy. Um, but my parents, um, they were both pretty self-made and, you know, my mother lost her father early and, um, you know, she kind of put herself through college and then put herself through her PhD program after helping my dad through it. And, you know, we kind of saw this this world grow up. Um, my parents uh, actually divorced when I was 14 years old. And so that was a pretty crazy time. And um, the Smith boys just kind of all went their own routes. And that, that was a little bit of my growing up. I think um, hard work was always something that they preached more than anything. 
And, you know, I've got so many stories where I remember I was 14 years old and my mother dropped all the boys off in downtown Provo and said, hey, it's it's June 1st. None of you are coming home without a job. Mm-hmm. So there you go. You're paying for your school clothes this year. And I'll never forget that because my one brother who was two years older than me ended up working in a dry cleaner and the other brother ended up working at the other dry cleaner. But this brother at the dry cleaner ended up actually owning a bike shop two years later in that same location of the dry cleaner. And it ended up kind of shaping his life and being a business owner and he's done, he's gotten to do really well, but it's kind of crazy. Like where, where things start is not where they end up. Yeah. What kind of activities were you into? Like, what did you like to spend your time doing as a, as a young kid? Yeah, it was pretty much sports and nothing else. Right. To the point where like, you know, Saturday chores, Saturday working, like I would not work. Like I would just jam, go play sports and then deal with the consequences later. Um, <laughs> that, that, that was for everything. It was for school. It was for anything. I just like to play. And, you know, my brothers were pre- all pretty hard workers and, it, you know, growing up, I just, I wanted to just go hard all day. And so yeah. that was it. And whether it was baseball, basketball, football, golf, like tennis, um, you know, I, there, there were dreams in every one of those areas that I was going to be like the next Andre Agassi or whatever it was. Right. And yeah, I would just go work at that. And, and, was there like, I mean, I'm not sure what happened to your sports career, but were you like on some track to end up playing in college and, you know, going pro on any of them? Or, or was it, was that just like a pipe dream that sort of ended like before you went to college? Yeah, you know, I think my probably, you know, I was pretty short. So basketball, you know, later I grew. I was kind of a late bloomer. My brother, I have a brother who's 6'6", but he was like 5'10 when he graduated high school. So that's kind of like the Smith role. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't that good. I was just kind of at a certain level in all of them. Um, golf in the latter years has definitely become like where I'm most proficient. And, you know, at 42, I still hoop, you know, three or four yeah. times a week in the mornings, which I call a win <laughs> my age. Right. And so uh, I think, I think that's probably it, but you know, there were times where I thought, hey, I'm going to be a professional golfer. Um, definitely could have probably gone to college, play golf, but not the college I wanted to go to, you know. Uh, so that's that's kind of where it ended up. I was thinking about it. If you like invest your time in any sport, let's say if you're not on some track to be pro, like golf is probably the, one of the best because you can just play forever and just keep getting better. And, you know, maybe once you're like in your you know 50s, 60s, you know, you have a nice handicap and you can go out there and, and still crush it and not have to worry about like your body giving up on you as much as any other, you know, high impact sport. Yeah, there's not many people playing pickup tackle football. <laughs> exactly. So, Ryan, you ended up going to byu did you know what you wanted to study or did you know what you wanted to be uh when you started there no no not at all i mean to be honest with you even back up before that like it's 17 years old i went to seoul korea to teach english i i barely graduated high school i dropped out of high school for two years to play golf and poker and like everything that was no good and uh and, you know, I, I, I had this vision to go to Seoul, Korea, because I had some friends who went over there and taught English. So I went over to Korea at 17 and then worked for a year over there teaching English. And I actually did really, really well. And I kind of came up with this. I, I kind of got in tune with if you have an idea, you can go execute on it. Because there was this moment in Seoul where I didn't have a place to live. 
I didn't have a job. I was basically spending all my money. My friends had gone home and I had this idea. I had this idea that if I could go target these large condo buildings who have kids to teach English, like I could actually like do something and it worked. And it kind of turned everything around. Um, and then I came home from Seoul and actually served. I went on a two-year uh, church mission in Mexico City. So for three years, I lived out of the United States. And coming home from there, um, I spoke fluent Spanish. And I said, hey, I want to go to BYU. I want to go into business at some level. I don't know what it is, but I really like that track. The problem was I had never been to school. I had never taken the ACT or the SAT. And I had like a 1.9 high school GPA because I didn't even go. And so that's a real hard problem to solve when you're trying to go get into like a top 20 university with those, that kind of background. And that's kind of where it started with like, like put your mind to it and go figure this out. And within mm -hmm. six months, I was in BYU. And then within a year later, I was um, in the business school, the Barrett School of Management. And that's kind of when everything happened at that point. You know, I end up meeting my wife. I end up, you know, starting Qualtrics. Um, right. And... So Ryan, talk to us a little, talk to us a little bit about your experience in Mexico with uh, the church mission. I mean, what was that experience like? And, uh, you know, did it open your eyes to certain things that you hadn't expected it to before you went? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a pretty amazing experience if you actually think about it, because you know, you, you fill out an application, you say, Hey, I, I mean, you actually pay for it yourself. Actually, all the money I made in Korea, I, I actually put and paid for my mission. Right. And, um, you basically fill out a form and they could call you to one in like 300 countries or whatever it is around the world. So you don't know where you're going and that can fundamentally shift the course of your life. And, um, you know, I get called to Mexico city And then you say, hey, do you want to go or not? And I was like, yeah, I want to go. And so it's, you know, two-month crash course on Spanish. And the next thing you know, you're dropped off and you see these, these dudes that are two by two, right? <laughs> and it's like, hey, here's, here's your guy that you're going to be with. And good luck. You guys are headed out to this area. And you have a confined area where it's like, hey, this is your city that you're in. Don't leave the city. And here's a home that's rented for you. That's where you stay. And Go talk to people. And, you know, it was it was pretty crazy because I get paired up with a guy who who and you end up loving these people. You know, right. these, these people become like your homies. Like these are your these are your guys. And I get I get paired up with a guy from northern Mexico who literally grew up as poor as poor could be on a ranch and he speaks no English. Like no yes, no, no. And I speak very little Spanish. And it is And you just end up communicating, you end up talking, you end up going and working, you work together for three months, and then he'll leave. And then a new person will come in with me. And then I'll go to a new area. And that's how it happened for like 14 different times. And so you get into a new area, you get really comfortable with uncertainty, you get really comfortable with change, you get really comfortable with um, having to figure it out. And You know, if you think about how that parlays into the rest of your life, I mean, to be honest with you, it prepares you for life more than anything else that you could ever do. Mm, yeah. and, you know, I, I, every time I set foot in Mexico, like 
there's just like this calming feeling that comes over because I'm like, okay, I'm with my people, right? This is where like I grew up. This is where I became a man. And um, I don't know. I, 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 love, I love that time. I wish I could go back all the time because it was just singular focused. Just go help people. And, and did you have this like kind of mindset going in of, of how, I guess, formative it would be and transformational it would be? Or was it something that you kind of just threw yourself into and, and now sort of in hindsight you're seeing how, how much of a, an impact it made on your life? Um, I don't – I mean you see people. You see the change. You definitely see the change before and after. Um, but it's different for every person. You know, some people go and they're like, hey, that's not for me. Other people go and it's like, whoa, that was incredible. Like, what what time? And, and it's hard at the time. You're, you're 19 to 21 and you're going, hey, like, I'm going to give up like that prime, you know, part of my career. If you're sports or you're doing something like, hey, I'm giving up those prime years. But I came back taller. I came back more confident. <laughs> I came back like for me, it was like it was beautiful. So fast forward to BYU, you're, you know, in business school, um, you know, and you start, you know, what becomes Caltrix in business school. I mean, how did the idea even come to be? Um, what, what inspired it? How did you even ideate such a thing? Yeah. So, so it really came by accident. Um, I, I wanted to do an internship. And that was in 2002. So we were in the shadow of the dot-com bust. Every company that was an internet company had, had you know, kind of gone belly up or at the time or you wanted to stay away from them. Um, so when you were looking for jobs at that time, you, you actually wanted to over-rotate on strong brick-and-mortar businesses that weren't going away. And so, you know, I, I found a job in L.A. I actually worked in Torrance. Um, and I, I worked for, uh, HP and I was working down there for HP. I had gotten like the best internship I could have dreamed of. Um, I'm living in Huntington beach. Like life could not be better at that point. And I get a phone call from my dad saying he has cancer and, and it's not looking good. And the, the, the diagnosis or the prognosis was not favorable. And so I literally like worked for another week and then came home. And this is, you know, in July, August of the internship. So I'd only been down there for four or five weeks. And I just said, screw school. I don't care. Like I'm spending time with my dad. So he was doing radiation and chemo treatments. And I just said, I'm going to be with him. I like, I am going to be with him. Like school can wait. I'll figure that out. So I delayed a semester. And my dad was working on like internet technology around, you know, these systems that would like gather data or I could send you a form. You could fill it out. Like, where do you want to go to lunch? And then it would come and it would give you all the results in a pie chart. And I was like, whoa, this is like really cool. Like you could gather data at scale now on the internet. And so I got him kind of really excited about it. He got me excited about it. And so he would go to his treatments. Then we, he'd rush home and I was there and we'd go into our attic of our house and we'd start working on like, how do we get other people on this? And it, and it kind of kept us both looking forward, looking for hope. So like, instead of fixing up a car, we, we started a tech company. Right. And that's, that's how Qualtrics started. And we didn't have any money. Um, you know, he was a professor and, 
you know, he recovered. Um, they were able to to treat him and, you know, he's still alive today, which is amazing. And we ended up starting something that really has become um, pretty incredible. Yeah, that is that is an incredible story. And, and and I guess at the time, though, like how far were, was your dad even thinking about this thing? Like you mentioned he was working on this technology. He wanted to build this as a professor. Like what what did he imagine it would become? Like did he just want to build it for himself or did he want to create an actual tech company out of it? Yeah, there's two types of academics. There's those who actually want to go out and like take something to the world and like really go there. And you think about like Stephen Covey or Dan Ariely and some of these guys who who really like take it out there. Um, and then there's folks who really like want a better academia. My, fa- my father was definitely on the better academia side. So everything he would develop would really go around like, all right, like how do I get research done easy for all of my peers? How do I get our PhD students to like adopt something? And then I kind of want to make enough money to get by, right? And you know, he was a little more out there than that, but not much. And I, I was kind of at the time, like pure capitalist. I was like, Hey, let's come in. We're going to go take this. Every company organization in the world can do it. Uh, they could use it. it how, how do we go take that out? So it actually became a great, great partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I was young and hungry and like willing to do things that no one else was willing to do. And I didn't need a lot to get by. So there wasn't a lot of risk for him to partner with me on it and and go because it's not like I think he would want to go do it anyways. It was more like, hey, Ryan, you're too young to know what you don't know, and yeah. that that played to our strength. And you, but you talk about like at the time it was right after the dot com bubble. You saw this crazy shit happen. All these companies close, especially tech companies. Like, did you have it in your mind that? you know, you could build a successful tech company at the time, like t- walk us through your like mindset at the, at the beginning, time. At the beginning, um, I definitely didn't. Um, in, in fact, after we had been going for two years, we were making a bunch of money and my dad told me I had to go get another internship. I said, dad, like we're, we're doing pretty well here. I think there's a path. There's a path that I might not have to go out and get a real job is what we called it. Yeah. And he made he made me go like get a job. He wouldn't let me do this. So I went and got a job at Ford Motor Company. And, you know, I I was working in Denver, Colorado because I wanted to kind of be ho- close to home. And I would leave on my lunch break and go sell Qualtrics. And I'll never forget, I was at a Kinko's because that's where I go set up shop at lunch and before work. And I closed Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. And that was enough to pay for, for my salary the whole next year. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I remember calling my dad. I was like, I'm coming home. Like, we're going we're gonna to do this. And right. it that to kind of so, have him feel okay. Yeah. That, that there was something real here. Yeah. So just to kind of backtrack a little bit, because, you know, at that moment, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of skills that you had to learn. It doesn't sound like you had really, for example, done sales or even built the product, a product before and all this stuff. So talk about, so, you know, you're going through this time, your dad is going through all this, all these health issues and you have this conversation about what he envisions for this product to look like. What comes next? Like, how did you go about even building the first iteration and how did you start putting together a business model for it and actually 
determining who your target customer is and how you're going to sell this thing. Yeah. So, so like, I wish we would have run the MBA exercise that said, Hey, like, here's our business model. Here's our plan. This is what we're going to go do. <laughs> but we really weren't thinking that far ahead. I mean, everything that we were doing was, Hey, how do we get the product to work? And my father was pretty technical. So like he'd create the website. He had a bunch of engineers that were students that were working for him and they kind of developed V1 and V2 and he would kind of manage that side of it. I would just work with people trying to get them to use it and say, hey, if, if people are on a cruise or people are in um, a university, could you, you know, gather data quicker, you know, and would you spend your budget on this product as opposed to another way you're going to spend your, you know, your $5,000 a year you have as a professor. Mm. And that that's really how it happened. I don't think we ever had a moment where it's like, okay, this is serious. This is where we're going to go. This is going to be a real thing until we were probably a couple years into it. Because if you think about it, I had job offers for $50,000, $60,000 a year. And for me to actually not take one of those, we had to make enough money for that to happen. Yeah, And that was really where it became real, real for all of us. And then as a father figure, he, he was very uncomfortable with me betting my future on that. And, you know, versus today where you see every young startup, they're so excited about their business. They've got their plan. They've got everything. They got their swag. They got their domain. And it's a little bit backwards. We just wanted to know if we had a fit, if we had a product that worked, if people actually valued it and like we could have a lifestyle from it. And my father never took a dime for the first, you know, probably seven to 10 years, mm-hmm. which is a really good key to have a co-founder that never has to get any money out right. starting. Um, so that's, I mean, it, it sounds pretty raw and it was. Mm-hmm. It was but were there, yeah, were there like other companies doing this at the time or were you the only one that had sort of designed this survey experience that you were selling? It was pretty early, man. Like it was pretty early. Like yeah. the, the, the amount, even in academia, they weren't accepting the fact that you could gather statistically significant data on the internet. Mm. And so there were companies that were messing around with it. Um, it went quick, you know, 2005, 2006, you started to see a lot of companies there that were well venture backed and, and had, had money that were going and trying to go to market as fast as they could. And that's, um, that's when it, that's when we kind of said, Hey, we're going to be doing this for a while. Yeah. And we were operating in our basement this whole time, you know, no venture money, we could basically, whatever we brought in, we could spend. And that was the, the governor on our growth. You make it, you can spend it. Yeah. Ryan, at what point of the company did you know it start to really get beyond just you guys as the founders and to a point where you started to realize that this was going to be a massive, massive undertaking and that there needed to be some scale behind it that you needed to shift the way the company was going to be able to grow. I'm I'm curious how that point or when that point was and what you thought about that and you know how you acted during that time. 
Yeah, there was a there was a lot there were a lot of those points because those points are relative. One of the points was when we had 20 people in the basement of our house and we said, "Hey, we've got to go get serious." And that was a big move to move into an office in 2000 early 2006. So here we are, we take this huge move in 2006 and we're actually going to go get an office which means the servers are going to have to go out of our basement somewhere else, like all of these things. And that was a big step. I remember saying, whoa, how are we, we can now recruit people. We're in a real office. Mm-hmm. And um, what's crazy is we made that move and we walked right into 2006, seven, eight, which were three of the craziest years in the last, you know, 40 or 50 years from an economic standpoint. And that's when the housing market crashed. That's when we went into recession. Um, and we had just basically moved out with no parachute, right? Yeah. With not a whole lot of money in the bank. And we had to all come together and say, hey, we all like this idea of this startup. And it, at the time, like, you know, it wasn't as competitive as it is right now. Like we could... We could actually convince people to come work for us. They liked the idea. We were showing a little bit of momentum. We had 30 or 40 people. Um, And, you know, we had to go figure out how to not become affected by what was happening in the broader macro economy. Mm -hmm. So we tailored our pitch. Um, Fortunately, we were calling on a lot of universities and everyone was going back to school in that time. Because that was a good time because the, the, the corporate market was not great and they still had budget. And so that helps keep us afloat. Um, I would say another um, major point was six years later when we took funding. You know, we had been bootstrapped to about $35 million in revenue with no outside funding. We owned 100% of the company. We were extremely profitable at the time because we had built a model where whatever we got, we could spend. And so that was the ultimate model. Um, And we had to make a decision. Someone came in and offered us $500 million in 2011 to buy our whole business. And we had to look around the table and say, hey, do we want to sell or do we want to go for it? And so this was another moment where it was like, okay, what could this be? Are, are we in? Is it going to be something? And, mm-hmm. you know, you're moving from, hey, this is a job to this is a lifestyle. The holy cow, we have a chance to go do something. This could actually really be real. When people are willing to validate your idea, not you, when other people are willing to validate it. And a validation means they're, they're like coming to buy you. Mm-hmm. Then you ask yourself. What is it that I have? Right. You know, when someone knocks on your door and says, hey, I want to buy your house. If you've got a home, you're like, okay, what what do they see that I don't see? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that was one of those moments. And then to turn down that money and then have Sequoia and Excel come in and we raise venture capital. That was when it was like, all right, we're, we're rolling. Like, let's, let's go. Yeah. And so before we kind of talk about what comes after this, um, kind of taking it back to that period between starting the company in like 2002 and then you mentioned 2006 is when you start kind of moving into the office, things are starting to become real. And then it wasn't until several years later that you actually raised funding and kind of took it to the next level. But in those four years, I mean, 
I know this was probably, like you mentioned, wasn't around a time when everyone maybe was thinking about entrepreneurship. Um, now, now things have obviously changed where everyone sort of wants to start a company and be a founder and an entrepreneur and, and live that type of life. And so I'm curious what was going on through your head in those like four or five years of, of when you first started it, where maybe you're seeing your friends and peers and other people who are going and working on, I don't know, Wall Street or these like this corporate company or that corporate company, and you don't want to do that. But I don't know, I don't, were, were you seeing significant growth like day, day by day? Or like, did you ever sit and wonder, you know, maybe there's an opportunity cost here. Like I could be doing something better with my time. Like things are kind of starting slower than I thought. Like how, what was, what were those early days and what was your mindset like? Yeah. People weren't gravitating really to startups like they do now. So you nailed it. Um, I think every one of my college roommates had a stint working in our basement and quickly said, Hey, I'm going to this accounting firm or I'm going to that accounting firm or I'm going to, to this consulting company. I'm going back to, to business school. Um, you know, I had one um, individual who was actually with me down in Mexico City who I brought in early. And, um, you know, he's one of the co-founders, Stuart. He was one of the only people that, like, came and said, hey, I'm all in on this. And, you know, if you look at his background, you know, his parents were kind of, they ran a uh, their own business. They had a pool service company in San Antonio. And, you know, that kind of ambiguity or uneasiness around the future. He didn't really, it didn't phase him. And neither one of us actually came up with the original idea of Qualtrics. If you actually think about that. Yeah. But when we saw an opportunity, we jumped on it. And we took something that was there and helped like bring it to life. And I think people get way too hung up on whether they are the ones that come up with the idea. I mean, every song that you pretty much hear on the radio, most of the time, it's written by someone very different than the, than the group that sings it. Yeah. And, and I think that if you look at yourself and you say, hey, am I an entrepreneur? And does entrepreneurship necessarily mean I've got to be the one that comes up with that original thought? There's just not many of those people who can actually take it and scale it. Or am I someone that can look at a thought and be opportunistic with it? Mm -hmm. And I would much rather be opportunistic than to be an entrepreneur. See, that's an interesting thing you bring up because um, I always grapple with this too because the, the the upside of being the person that comes up with the idea is you know, maybe it was born out of something that is a necessary thing for your life or a pain that you have or something where you have this attachment to that. So that, that gets you through those early stages of you know things maybe being difficult or not working out or again, again this whole opportunity cost thing where you have this like thing that you're tied to that it's going to be hard for you to quit on versus the opportunistic thing. You know, um, I think that unless you, unless you just have this crazy, crazy work ethic and you, you're like determined to make this thing successful, it can be really easy to just fall by the wayside and, and kind of just like not, you know, not see, see it through because you don't have this like emotional attachment to the, to that particular product or, or pain that you're, solving. So I, I know this, we could probably debate this, but it's just an interesting uh, dichotomy there. Yeah. But most of the time when you come up with an idea, you're coming up with it with someone else. Right. And, yeah. and there's, 
there's, I mean, I always believe like I always work two in a box. I always have a thought partner. I'm always someone there. And, you know, my father needed us just as much as we needed him. And I think that if, you know, I see a lot, a lot of tech companies out there where, look, not everyone's going to be the person that comes up with with that idea. You know, I see some, you know, folks, or I'll talk to MBA classes and I'll say, hey, someone might have the next Facebook sitting in this room. You'll do just as good to go be the partner that helps them bring it to life, right? If there is that moment. Um, but, but, but Ryan, don't you think that, don't you, sorry to cut you off, but don't you think that ego plays a big role in that? The fact that if you and I are talking, or let's say me and Pat have an idea, and I have the idea, but Pat is so good at operating it, he knows how to bring it to life. I think where you see issues in daily life or in partnerships and business, et cetera, is where the person that came up with the idea, quote unquote, wants to take the credit for it, right? Not the operator. It's the unsexy thing to be the operator. It's the sexier thing to be the visionary, to be the founder or whatever. But I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is the one who's always on TV, always getting interviewed. Sheryl Sandberg probably is the one that has done most of the work, but she doesn't get as much credit, right? So I think, I, I mean, I agree with you, but how does one shift that narrative, right? How do you go from entrepreneurship being sexy to operations being sexy to actually executing being sexy? Well, I think there's a difference between when you're still founding then versus when you're at Facebook, right? Because Steve Jobs did not come up with all of those products. Right. If I look at the innovations come out of Qualtrics, it's been a group effort. And when you're going back early, those ideas are so fragile that they're not birthed yet. And so you're actually part of it, but everyone gets so hung up that they're going to go close themselves in a room and have to come up with it, that it's not realistic. I, I think that the key is that you get the right people around the table and you you work on it. Qualtrics ended up in a totally different spot than what was in my dad's head. Mm-hmm. But he, he got the first zero to one, as Peter Thiel calls that first right. zero to one moment nailed. And then we innovated on top of that together. Right. And innovation can be as a company on the go-to-market side. It could be on the positioning and the branding. It can be on what goes in there or maybe... I mean, we were called Survey Pro to start. And so it was only surveys. And that that's great, but that's about a $100 million market compared to where we are now as a $20 billion company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So look at all of the innovation that's coming along the way. And that's not that uncommon from what you see. But it's, I don't know, it seems like without any of the pieces we had early on, both Myself, my dad, Stuart, and Jared, we wouldn't have gotten here. And on a Jared per- came in nine years later. Ryan, on a personal level, I mean, did you have this level of confidence that perhaps others in your position would not have had? Meaning, like, you hadn't been necessarily in business before. You hadn't started a company. You hadn't been a part of a startup 
or an exit or anything of that nature. You were this young kid who was working with his dad and a couple others to start this thing, to figure out what we're going to do. What gave you that level of confidence that I can be a leader, I can be a visionary, I can be an innovator? Look, I think the three years prior, I mean, I was in some pretty gnarly situations in those three years, um, both in Korea and then also in Mexico. And, and, you know, I always thought that, hey, if I can get through those, then this is awesome. (laughs) Right. Um, And just just being able to operate at a pretty high level of uncertainty and being comfortable in that. And that takes time. It takes reps. Um, but it's also who you have around you. You know, I think that Stuart was always incredibly comforting. My father, you know, came at it from a totally different scenario. And then when we ended up recruiting my brother back, who was an early Googler, uh, it, it just completed the pie because it felt like, hey, look, if, if we're going into any situation, I think we got it all covered with these people and we all worked harmoniously together in a pretty unique way. Mm. And, you know, and they weren't, they weren't going to give up and that's a competitive advantage. And it's one of the things I see more than anything is like, they were going to find a way and we were going to find a way to win. And, and is there anything more to it than that? And, and you can brag in this scenario because I think that it's important to talk about these things because we, we see people who start companies that as soon as it becomes or reaches a certain level, maybe organizationally you have a lot of employees or you, you just have a lot of customers and not, now you're kind of getting into this different type of business where the, you as the founder might no longer be the right person to stay at the helm of the company and now you have to bring in a more seasoned CEO. Like We see that all the time. It's actually more rare to see people like yourself or like Mark Zuckerberg or people that are the founders, but also are able to, you know, go through all these different stages of the business and, and be a good CEO and an effective leader. Right. And so what other skills do you think maybe you had or picked up on early on that allowed you to be so adaptable that allowed you to be so, I don't know, like, I'm sure you learned a shit ton in those early years and, 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 you know, transformed as a leader and, and of people, right. As well, because you hadn't been really in those situations as much. So is there anything more to it than that? Well, I think, I mean, there's a couple scenarios I remember. I remember when we took venture funding and I sat at a Sequoia Capital event with all of these hot founders. And these were hot companies that people that you would recognize. And I remember sitting there and like three companies got up and there was a new CEO in all of them. And I remember turning to our board member going, dude, we just took your money. And is that what's going to happen to me? Right. And you go back three weeks earlier, we're sitting around the table and we never had a CEO. It was like operating as founders. And they came in and said, hey, we'll give you a check for venture capital. But one of you has to be the CEO to me and my brother. And we just all kind of paused and looked at each other. And there was like, it seemed like five minutes of silence. Because Jared did not leave Google. I mean, he was running Google China. I mean, the kids, he's one of the best product people in the world. And he, he, he looked at me and he looked at them. And I knew he didn't come back to work for his little brother. That was going to be a hard thing to digest. And he finally just puts his hand on the table and stands up and goes, I don't do media. It's him. And he pointed, they pointed at me. <laughs> and, and it's true. Jared doesn't do media. 
And he said the media was a part of this. So, and then everyone kind of got behind me and said, hey, Ryan, as long as you're in learning mode and you're the fastest learner in the building, we're going to get behind you. And were there times in this journey where there was probably someone more senior? Was there someone better? Was there someone that could have done a better job at CEO? Absolutely. They made it safe for me to fail. They made it safe. They backed me. And that confidence behind you is what helps develop you as a leader. As long as you're willing to be the fastest learner in the building, you have to be. And you've got to be, you've got to have a bit of humility in a weird way. And those are polar opposite emotions. How do you become incredibly confident and visionary and lead a bunch of people? But at the same time, you've got to be humble enough to say, hey, I don't have to be right. We just have to get it right. And especially when you're young and you're hiring people who are 20 years your senior with 20 years more experience to go work for you. And they're sitting in your staff meeting after they've sat in Bill Gates' staff meeting. <laughs> That's hard. Yeah. And so you've got to make sure that those people around you want you to succeed. And I think that's, I've been the beneficiary of that. And then you pick it up and you pick it up and you learn and you go through it. And I would always rather have a capable young CEO that's grown up through the ranks, especially if they're a founder, because you can just look at founder run companies. They're, they just outperform. I mean, it's just, it's not even funny, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you look at, you know, from a, from an IPO standpoint and everything else, I mean, that's why investors love found, founder run companies, but wow. you've got to have founders that are also willing to kind of play the long game here and go through that. Cause it's, it's hard. What was, what was your biggest challenge over the last, it's been now what, 18, 19 years, um, as the founder, as the leader, I mean, was there a moment that you were just like, shit, man, like, I don't know if I can do this. I would, I would say the amount of times I've tried to quit are <laughs> probably too many to count where my brother and I are, are we've had to talk each other off the left. I mean, and, and that means you're pushing hard. If you're not that way, you're not pushing hard enough. You've got extra gears that, that you're not tapping into. And I see these, I, I meet these founders all the time and it's like, everything's going so amazing. Like our company's killing it. Everything's going well. And I'm looking at them going, I don't think I have ever said that in 18 years. I don't think I have ever said how great our company is going. We're fucking crushing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I, you're not working. You're not going hard enough or, or I'm missing something because I can barely, I mean, we're adding 1,500 employees on top of 1,500 employees in one year, and the whole ship's about to break. <laughs> right? So I, I just don't understand like how people are get so excited about their own world and what they're working on. I understand the excitement, but at the same time, if you're really pushing yourself to take advantage of the opportunity as, as, as much as it can be um, – you're typically having more, more probably harder days than, than fun days where it's like, we're always crushing it. Let's go. like, yeah. you know, th- there's a component of that, but it's right. also mindset. I want other people to talk about how good we're doing, not us talk about it. 
Right. Yeah. So it, I th- it, that's 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 the hard part of it. Mm-hmm. So I think it was around uh, I think a couple of years ago, probably like what seventeen years after you started the business that you ended up selling it, it got acquired, um, and I think it was like I don't know if eight billion is like the right number, but around that much. What was going through your mind at that time after you had spent all this time building this this company and like going through all this, you know, all these phases and and everything you just talked about? Like, what was your mindset like? Because I think people oftentimes might assume how a person thinks like when their company gets bought by so much or they go public or whatever happens. And I kind of just want to hear from your your perspective on on how that was for you and what was going through your head. Yeah, it's a really good question. And the reason why is because, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll teach at Stanford a bunch and we'll talk through some of these things and, and the MBA and the, the mentality of folks on how these types of decisions are made probably couldn't be more further from reality. Yeah. You know, when we turned down $500 million. It was because my wife and I drove down the road. And we, I just wanted to go on a four-hour drive because it was coming down to my decision, my vote. And she just said, you're too young. And we turned around and came home and said, we're not doing it. Like, like it was that. Like, it wasn't like nothing good's going to happen. Um, we were three days before going public. SAP came in. They offered $8 billion cash. It doesn't happen. People don't buy private companies um, for, for that dollar amount. I mean, it was the largest private enterprise software acquisition of all time. And we were kind of in a moment where we had about three hours to make the call. And you've got to ask yourself, really, like, is this the right move or do I go down? Which which door is it? Um, And for me, where we were at, um, you know, we we were never sitting there going, hey, we have to be a public company and I have to personally be a public CEO for fulfillment. I, I never felt that way. And I just want to be opportunistic and do what's best. And we had this new category we had created called experience management. And SAP offered a global platform to go take it out there that was even bigger than being public. Mm-hmm. And this just doesn't come around. In 20 years, we had two people try to buy our company. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like there's that many opportunities for this. And so we made the decision that we were going to go down that road. Um, and then afterwards, once it closed, I remember sitting in a president's club. So we had all of our top salespeople. We had taken 100 people to Hawaii. And we announced it in November. We closed in January. I remember all sitting there by the pool and the wires hit. And I could kind of look around and see, like, what, what had happened. <laughs> you could kind of tell. Like, you could tell, like, people were, like, looking. People were with their spouses, do they just like wire one lump sum into your account? Like, yeah, they like wire in and then it kind of goes. And I remember showing my wife. I remember, I remember ha- grabbing my phone and saying, "Hey, honey, like check this out." And her whole response, like all she did was look at me. And she was reading a book. She looked at me and she's like, "Ooh, scary." <laughs> yeah. And I was like, "Whoa!" And I remember sitting there going. Like just kind of by myself. And I was a little pissed. I was like, like 20 years. And the only thing you can say is scary. Like that's, that's, but it, it actually, that's it's how better, it's better than her saying that's it. Yeah. I, <laughs> but, 
But reality is, is it was so underwhelming. It was so underwhelming. And the reason why it was underwhelming, because if that's what you're working for, you're not going to get the fulfillment. And it became real when I started walking around that day and seeing couples saying, we just paid off our house. That gave me a ton of joy. It, it, it It was more when the people started experiencing that. And I think a lot of founders, a lot of people get those two worlds confused. And at times I'm sure I have. Um, you will get a lot more joy about the team winning than you personally winning. And this was just one little moment in time where it became really clear where joy comes from in that sense is that when the company participates, when the company wins, when people who have bet on you get a chance to have a life-changing moment. And that's, that's, that's what's happened. But in your head, were you like – you know, was there a sense of financial freedom or security that you can now go on and do th- other things or not really? No, it just it never went that way. Just never like I just you don't you don't think that way. Yeah. Like I, I wish I wish that's like how you would think. And maybe if you were if you were looking back when you were in the basement to that point, you might go if you just skipped right there. But when you're going through it all, it was actually more like, no, I want to. I'm going to keep running this. Yeah. We actually looked at what happened next. And I'm sure we'll get into that. We kept running it and then took it public 18 months later. And we're continuing to run. I'm at Qualtrics right now. Right. Like that's incredible. So kind of just to touch on, so you kind of mentioned that and then to touch on your personal sort of role, I think it might've been around last year where you moved from CEO like day to day to, just executive chairman kind of overseeing that kind of stuff. What, what led that, what led to that? What, why did you decide to switch uh, or, or I guess move out of the day-to-day role? Yeah, I, I still feel like I'm day-to-day. Um, <laughs> Maybe not. I mean, you tell me. Yeah, yeah. So, so look, I think here's what's happened. We got acquired and everyone told us what was going to happen. You know, I had employees coming in. Hey, now that you're acquired, my friend told me this is what happens when you're acquired. So, um, there's no career path. There's no opportunity. I'm headed out or I'm doing this and doing that. So here's a funny lesson in tech. Everyone tells you everything that's going to happen all the time, but no people know. I remember the first time we, we were getting ready to go public in 2018, there was a bunch of chatter around the water cooler online saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. We go public. I remember sitting in one all hands and I was like, hey, how many of you have gone public before or been with a public company? Like two people raised their hands. And I was like, okay. Um, so unless you're talking to those two people, you probably have some bad information, right? Right. And this was a little bit around um, what happened when we were acquired. And I, I just said, no, we're going to put our heads down and we're going to continue to build the company like we own it and good things will happen and come along for the ride. And in July, the opportunity came where we had a new CEO at SAP and Christian and Hasso Plattner, the, the founder, they called and we had some discussions about how, how Qualtrics was doing, and we, we were doing really, really well. And one thing led to another, and we thought, hey, let's take this thing public. Because inside SAP, like, it's gotten twice as big. Like, let's keep rolling. Mm-hmm. And um, it hadn't been done before. I mean, there's very few. If this was case law, there wasn't a lot. 
And so we, we went through it. We talked to bankers. We, they said, yeah, I guess you could do that. And we hadn't integrated it fully. So we, we came up with the opportunity. And, and, and it really came down to the team here. Is like, was the team here locked in? And did they want to go do it? And um, I felt really strongly that for whatever reason, I wasn't supposed to be the public company CEO the first time. The way it happened, the way we were purchased, and I don't know why. I just I felt like, hey, Ryan, like you're not supposed to be the public company CEO, and you're not supposed to go down that door and take the eight billion dollar offer, and that's the way to go. So I felt like when it was coming back to go public again, um, it was just coming back at me disguised differently, and I kind of sat down with my wife and said, "What's changed?" Is it because it's going to be a bigger IPO that now we'll go be public CEO? We decided once that we weren't going to go down that path. What is it? And, you know, kind of at the last minute when we were talking, I sat down with Zig, who was my COO at the time and president, and Chris, and said, hey, look, I want to go do this. I want to operate Qualtrics. I want to be here on the ride with you all, but I just don't want to be the CEO of the public company. For whatever reason, I want to go do what I do. I want to help sell and recruit and brand and market. I don't want to. I don't want to go be on that side of it. And I'll do everything else. Like, and and Zig, by the way, you're getting recruited left and right to go be the CEO of public companies. Why don't you both take your next job right here? And I'm still the founder. And everyone agreed, and SAP agreed, and like we filed our paperwork and. In like August. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy is, you know, a month later, we also have, you know, we, we have the Utah Jazz under contract, which no one knew, right? And I think it would be really hard for me to handle the public markets and the jazz at the same time. So I, I kind of have a great job right now where I get to operate Qualtrics in the way that the things that I'm really good at and Zig, it's the ultimate divide and conquer. And I'm still here and I'm still a part of it. We were on CNBC yesterday, right? Yeah, and talking about the jazz thing, like did it happen that quick or or was it something that was over a period of a, like a longer time of of you know you planning to wanting to, you know, buy the team and or get a majority stake and, and and knowing that it was up for sale? Like did it was it over a longer period of time or did it just kinda happen all at the same time? No, it, it happened very quickly. I mean, the jazz have been in one family for the last thirty five years. It's never really been for sale. Um there was no minority stake. It was just they decided that they were ready to make a transition and they knew that I had interest there. I always loved the NBA and, you know, the, you know, Gail and the Miller family have done such an incredible job, felt, felt really good about handing it off in this way and keeping it in Utah and doing those things. And um, I had looked at other teams in the league and, you know, turned down other teams because they weren't in the market where I lived and to have it kind of all happen at the same time. It's pretty serendipitous. Do you see a time in your career in the future where you'll fully move on from Qualtrics and just be uh, a sports owner? Or do you think that you want to still be a part of this business or perhaps another business and also still be a part of the Utah jazz? You know, I've always said that first of all, I want to be in tech. Like I'm, I'm a tech first guy. Like it's, it's what I do. Um, 
and I've always said that I don't want to go start another business. I'd rather just, I, I just love Qualtrics. And so I hope that they'll have me as long as, as long as I, I want to be here, which, you know, for, for, for right now, seems like a really long time. Right. And, and that's where, that's where I'm at. So I feel really excited about, I'm, I'm excited about Qualtrics is, is anything I've ever done today. I mean, you know, this is the crazy part. Like when you're a startup in the basement, you're, you're, you're asking yourself, man, I can't wait till we have customers. I can't wait till we have marketing. I can't wait till people know our name. I can't wait till we're out there. I can't wait till we have scale and we can hire people and they'll join us. Now what happens in tech is you get to a certain size and everyone's like, oh, I want to go back to the basement because, because I wish we were smaller and we could get things done and this would happen. And I'm like, were you guys ever in the basement? Because it sucked, right? Like the basement was a worst experience of my life. All I was doing was dreaming for this day, this moment. And you're going to get to this moment and then run off the field. I've been dreaming about Qualtrics being where we are today for 20 years. So when you ask, like, do you see me selling? It would feel like I'm running off the field because... I think our best years are ahead of us. I, I want to see how this company operates at scale. I want to see it dominate the market. I want to see it in the number one position, you know, unquestionably, and that's where we're headed. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that is the dream that, you know, we talked about the early days that we get to go play out. And I feel super fortunate that 20 years later, I'm still young enough hungry enough and excited enough be in a spot to go do that because all those things have to be true in order for this to work for me. And yeah, that's, that's pretty unique. And I, I realize that. And so I don't want to, I don't want to give that up. Yep. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for sharing, uh, you know, your journey with us and, you know, how it began and how it progressed and how it continues. And I I don't want to call it how it ends because you're still super young. You know, there's so much more to do. There's so many more problems to solve, both within Qualtrics and just in the world in general. And, you know, I think technology can play a big role in doing that. So, you know, I would not be surprised if, you know, you utilize your experience and your skills in the industry to do something about that and to, to make the world a better place, essentially. And so, Thank you for your uh, generosity. Thank you for your knowledge. And we're excited to see what comes next uh, for you. And best of luck to the Utah Jazz. I, I, I won't be rooting for them, but I will be rooting for you. Um, and I, I do hope for the best in all you do. It's all the same. And I'm going to send you guys some swag so you can. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it's, purple look, look, it's all about persuasion. I, it's I, all need about more, persuasion. I need more gym gear. So just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm easily persuaded. Easily persuaded. All right. And hopefully all right. we can meet in person someday and maybe get around a golfing or something. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. Anytime, man. Keep up the good work, man. Thank Tell you, guys. Yours.